faithfully. I'm so glad that all the 1058th in Hingham came back uh, safe and sound, and we just give thanks to God for that. Uh, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, page 680. Isaiah chapter 6, page 680, as we continue our study of Isaiah. Just a reminder, this Thursday night is, uh, coming Thursday, is the National Day of Prayer. And we're going to be gathering here at the church to pray at 7.30. We would like everybody to come, even if, uh, you know, you're like, prayer meeting, ah, you know, and that freaks you out. Just come anyway. No one's going to make you pray out loud. No one's going to make you uncomfortable. Just come and, and be a part of it. Listen, pray silently, whatever. You know, God's not counting the decibels or anything like that. Just come and be a part of it. That would be 7.30 this Thursday night. We'd like the whole church to be here to pray. So maybe you've got family at home, you know, and, and there's two of you. Sit, keep someone home with the kids and have someone come as a representative, whatever. But we'd really like to have the whole church here praying on Thursday night, 7.30. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 says, uh, we'll start at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, Understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we, we give you thanks that you are God. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, who died on the cross for us. And this morning I want to give you thanks for the Holy Spirit who came from the Father and from the Son to be with us. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that right now your Holy Spirit is in this room, that right now your Holy Spirit is at work, and that wherever the Holy Spirit is, Jesus is. And therefore, Jesus himself is with us. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit because it's not something we can put in a test tube. It's not something we can sense through a radar or other um, scanning devices. The Holy Spirit is mysterious. It's above and beyond, and yet it's right here with us. And Lord, I thank you that your Holy Spirit is at work now. And so I just pray, Lord, that your powerful Spirit would be at work in our hearts as we study the Bible, that we wouldn't simply learn some information or, or hear an interesting talk or anything like that. But we pray the Holy Spirit might be working in our hearts. Lord, there's lots of work that needs to be done in each of our lives. And we don't even know what it is in our own lives that needs to be done fully. We're, we're ignorant of it, but we know that you know. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would just work in the nooks and crannies and secret places of our souls right now to do whatever it is you need to do in us to make us more and more in love and in likeness of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we just pray, be at work, and we're excited to see what you're going to do. Lord, surprise us today with your Holy Spirit. Surprise us with the work you're going to do in our hearts. I pray that we might leave this morning uh, recognizing that you did something in us that was totally unexpected. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. 
Well, this is a, a challenging passage. Uh, you know, there's some passages in the Bible that are really cool. You read them, you're like, oh, that's great, that encourages me. Then there's other passages in the Bible, you read it and you go, what? Uh, you know, then you flip over to one of the passages you like. But this is one of those hard passages that when you study it, you're thinking like, what is that talking about? What is that doing in the Bible? And, and I think uh, Isaiah 6, 9 through uh, 13 is just one of those tough passages that's difficult to put together. Uh, so, so we're going we're gonna to look at it this morning since we've been studying through Isaiah 6. Um, perhaps I should just put it in a quick context. For those of you who are uh, here for the first Sunday, we've been studying through Isaiah 6 for like the last two Sundays, and now we're coming to the end of it. Uh, and, and so just to recap quickly what's taken place in chapter 6, the first thing that happened was Isaiah saw a vision of God. Remember that? Isaiah's vision of God. It's in verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And in the presence of this, this almost debilitating uh, vision of God's greatness, Isaiah responds in terror and repentance. Look down at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But then what God does is He comes and forgives Isaiah's sins, and that's in verses 6 and 7. It says, Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So, so far so good. That's where we are. Now Isaiah, he's in the presence of God in this visionary experience and he's standing before God and his sins are forgiven and he's ready to serve the Lord. And that's where we pick up the story today. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now, footnote, uh, probably shouldn't volunteer for a job unless you know what the mission is. Isn't that right, Bobby, man? You've uh, you, you got to know what the mission is before your sergeant. Uh, you know, let your sergeant tell you what it is before you say, okay, yeah, I'll go do that. You know, and, and in this case, he doesn't even know the mission. He's like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. So let's look at the mission, verse 9. He says, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Yeah. What? It's like, did I read that right? Verse 10. Make their hearts calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. In other words, Isaiah, I want you to go preach a message. And the result of you preaching is going to be that people are going to stop listening to me. That's, that's the purpose. I want you to go and preach knowing that because of your preaching, because when you preach this whole book of Isaiah, people are going to listen less and less and less. They're going to close their, their ears, close their eyes, and close their hearts. It, you know, really? Otherwise, verse 10, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So Isaiah, I want you to go preach to these people so that they won't listen to what you have to say and so that they'll become increasingly closed to my message. That's what I want you to go do. Like, 
Are you sure about this? Make their hearts callous? I mean, doesn't God want people to hear His Word and respond? Isn't that the whole point of sending a prophet? It's so that the people will say, Oh, you're right, and they'll repent and turn back to God. But He's saying, Look, Isaiah, you're going to preach and preach your heart out. And the majority of the people are going to get harder and harder and harder. And that's your mission. Like, wow. I want you to shine the light of truth, shine the light of the Gospel, but instead of people going, oh, and seeing the path and walking in it, they're just going to get blind. That's what's going to happen, Isaiah. This is the job that I'm giving you. And, and, and it's a difficult thing to, to try to put together. Like, why would God do this? Like I said, doesn't God want people to turn to Him? Why would God purposefully make people spiritually uh, insensible? Why would He make people blind and deaf and harden their hearts? It, it just seems so odd. I think the, the problem with this text is put well in your sermon notes. If you look in your sermon notes, there's a quote there by a guy named E.J. Young at the top. He wrote a commentary on Isaiah. And he put the question well. He said, Strange indeed are the ways of the great God. He commands that all men hear His word and walk in His paths. At the same time, he sends forth a messenger to prevent this result from occurring. He opposes the Word of God with the Word of God. How can this be explained? And so here we have the, the difficult text. This is just one of those texts that make you scratch your heads and you say, God, I, I don't understand. What kind of mission is this? Why would you send someone to do this? Don't you want people to respond? So why are you making people so that they're unable to respond? It doesn't make any sense to us, God. So, uh, what do we do with a text like this? How are we supposed to understand it? Well, I think there's two things that can help us to shed some light on this text. Um, one has to do with who God is, and the second one has to do with who we are. And uh, let me focus a little bit on the first one, but then spend most of the, the time looking at the second one. Who God is, uh, well, first of all, God is sovereign. I think that's the first answer to this question. God's the king. He's the one who sits on the throne that we read about in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. So basically what that means is he can do whatever he wants. Okay? He's the king. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's the, he's the creator, we're the creation. And if he wants to shape the clay, if he wants to create however he wants to do, he can do that because he has absolute sovereignty even over human beings and human hearts. I know we don't like to hear that. We like to think that we're kind of absolute. But we're relative. God is absolute. And if he wants to make us something, he can do it. So, so that's part of the answer to the question, a major part of the answer. But there's another aspect here, and I think this is interesting, and it's a little more subtle, but, but I wanted to bring it out. The other thing that I think is taking place in this passage is that there's an ironic judgment taking place on the idolatry of the people. An ironic judgment. Look back at the text in verse 9. Notice all the, the hearing-seeing language. He says, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. You know, listen, listen, listen with your physical ears, but your spiritual ears, they're going to be closed. Look with your physical eyes at all the things Isaiah is doing, but your spiritual eyes are going to be closed. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull. Close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. So over and over you have language about the hearts, the eyes, the ears... 
uh, and, and say, you know, what's going on here? I think what it is is an ironic judgment against the idolatry of the people because this language about eyes that don't work and ears that don't work is biblical language to describe idols. That's what idols are like. I mean, you know, you know idol, it's a big statue, right? Some guy or some deity or something, and it's got a face on it. But it has eyes, but they're not real eyes. They're just carved eyes. It's got ears, but they're just carved ears. So they don't work. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears that can't hear. They have a head, which presumably has a mind in it, but the mind doesn't understand. They have a chest that has a heart in it, but the heart doesn't work. And so, uh, in fact, look at, keep your finger here. Look at Isaiah chapter 44. Just turn over real quickly to Isaiah 44, uh, 16. For, for a description of what idols are like. This is what idols are like. In other words, this is a common biblical critique of idolatry. One of the common uh, jibes that the biblical writers jibe toward the idolatry of the nations around them is that idols, uh, they can't hear, they can't see. So why do you worship this thing that senses don't work? So look at Isaiah 44, verse 16. He says, half the wood, no, he's talking about a guy who cuts down a tree. He says, half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. (laughs) Then verse 17, From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Then here's the critique. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds are closed so they cannot understand. That's what idols are like. So I think what's happening here in Isaiah 6, in addition to God just sovereignly hardening whom He wants to harden and having mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, I think in chapter 6, God is ironically judging idolatry. It's kind of like, look, you want to worship idols? Well, you're going to become just like them. We become like what we worship. Whatever I worship... That's what I will become spiritually. And if I worship an idol, I will become spiritually like the idol. My, my eyes, my spiritual eyes will stop working. My spiritual ears will stop hearing. And so what I think is happening here is God is, is just kind of ironically judging them, saying, fine, that's what you're going to become like. Uh, look at your sermon notes again. And you see this theme in other places of the Bible. Other places in the Old Testament we find that God says that you become like what you worship, and if you worship an idol, you'll become spiritually like that which, which you uh, reverence. Look at the uh, quotes in the sermon notes. Becoming like insensible idols. Here's Psalm 115. It says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. But their gods are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, And then uh, this Psalm 135 is almost an exact quote of Psalm 115. And then Jeremiah 2.5 at the bottom. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Or just one more, Hosea 9.10. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and 
became as vile as the thing they loved. So I, I think that's what's taking place in Isaiah 6. Uh, God is, is ironically turning the tables on the people. The people have rejected the living God, the living and true God, emphasis on the living God, and they have followed after dead pieces of wood stone and stones, idols that really are not God's, and so God is saying, if that's what you're going to worship, then I'm going to sovereignly make you like the idols you worship. You're going to become spiritually insensible. So in other words, um, I think what's happening here, here's the key word, God is intensifying their rebellion. He's intensifying it. It's not like God is taking some really good people who really love Him a lot and just kind of going, <laughs> I'm going to have some fun here. You know, zapping some guy and making some guy who loves him suddenly like, oh, now I hate you, God. It's not like God is changing people who are good into something bad. It's just that people are going away from him and he's like going, okay, go ahead, whatever. You know, do your thing. In fact, I'm going to help you on your way. That's where you want to go? Here you go. I'm going to give you a push. I'm going to help you down that same path. Which is really a, a terrifying thought that God might have done with a person. I, mean, I, I don't know. What's more disturbing? God sending trials into your life to get your attention and we say, oh, why is God doing this to me? Or, or if God just says, fine, be on your merry way. Your life's going to be fine. I'm not going to care about you anymore. That's what's really terrifying. And that's what, that's what God's doing. He's like, fine, you're going to be just like those idols that you want to worship. You're not going to be able to hear or, or see or understand spiritually. It's kind of like, I was thinking of an analogy, it's kind of like a guy on a river in a canoe and he's canoeing down the river, and there's signs on the side of the river, warning, dangerous 200-foot waterfall at end of river. And the guy's like, eh, you know, warning, and there's all these signs, and there's like pictures, you know, it's like a picture of a canoe, you know, and you know, he's just like, mm, and the guy's just, you know, paddling along, and, 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 and it's, you know, ah, yeah, 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 waterfall, waterfall, and he just keeps going and going. And so eventually the, the river, as it nears the waterfall, gets narrower. The pace of the river picks up incredibly and there's sheer walls so he can't get out. And so finally he's heading toward the waterfall and he's sort of past the point of no return where he, he's just being swept along. And, and if at the last minute he wanted to jump out, he couldn't because he's just, it's too late. And, and it's, I think that's the picture here. Isaiah's, God's like, look Isaiah, you're going to run along the bank and shout it at Israel as they go down the river. That's your job, Isaiah. And most of them aren't going to listen to you. Like I said, you need to know the job before you volunteer for it. And so here's Isaiah now. He's running down the side. Hey, stop worshiping idols. Turn back to the living God. You know, for 50, or however long his ministry was, 40 years, screaming and yelling and jumping all along the way. And, and Israel just, yeah, 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 Isaiah. Yeah, 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 we heard that before. Yeah, yeah, we read that part. Oh, yeah, leave us alone. Let's leave us alone. Just canoeing away. A few people respond here and there, but, but for the mo you know, there is an elect that, that, is, that, that responds, a remnant, but, but the rest just keep paddling away, paddling away. It, it, so, you know, that's what's happening here. God is like, fine, just go your way. It's an intensification of rebellion. Or if you look on page two of the sermon notes, E.J. Young puts it well. This is kind of the same idea in his words. It says, the nation had so sinned and hardened its heart that it contained within it the seeds of its own destruction. The theocracy must come to an end. And the theocracy, that's Israel being ruled by God. That's a theocracy. 
the theocracy must come to an end. But if the theocracy must come to an end, it must be a theocracy which will have no concern for God. That is, it must in actual fact no longer be a theocracy. So Isaiah's ministry was to preach to stony soil so that it might be apparent that the people were no longer the theocracy and that they were rightfully ripe for banishment from their land. God decides to give them over to that which they are already worshipping. They have rejected the living God. And so God, the living God, rejects this people and says, you can have your idols, you're going to be just like them. Because we always become like what we worship. And if we worship an idol, we become spiritually like that idol. We will become spiritually insensible to the living God. It's very similar to, I think, what's taking place in Romans chapter 1. You're flipping around a lot this morning. Go to Romans 1. It's on page 11, 12 in a few Bibles. Romans chapter 1. So what was happening with, with Israel on that day in, in a small scale is also kind of a picture of what's happened with the human race. And Romans chapter 1 gives us the more global scale. Page 11, 12. Look at verse 21. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, in other words, idols, made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So they they say, we're going to worship the creation instead of the Creator. Therefore, verse 24, here it is, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, so on and so forth. So so, so you get the idea here? You have both the absolute sovereignty of God as well as the uh, willful sinfulness of humanity. And I think that's what's taking place in Isaiah chapter 6. Sovereign God is sovereignly hardening whom He wants to harden and having mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. And He's saying to this lot, you want to worship idols? Then just go on ahead. And I'm just going to give you a little push and I'm going to intensify it. And the more Isaiah is going to preach, the more you're just going to shut it out. Because that's, that's the direction that you're headed. That's the trajectory you're headed. So then, what, what does this mean for us? Because obviously these words were spoken to Israel on that day. You know, what kind of application does it have for us? I mean, how does this passage strike you in terms of what you would take away from it uh, for tomorrow morning when you go back to work or your normal life or school? You know, how do we put this pra- passage into practice? And as I was studying it, uh, I, I think the thing that most jumped out at me was just the fear of God. <laughs> That's the thing that most struck me from this passage, was that I need to really fear God. That God is not fooling around. That when God said in uh, the Ten Commandments, Second Commandment, you shall not make a graven image, because I, the Lord, am a jealous God, you know, He meant that whole thing. And uh, th- that's what struck me. Like, wow, God is serious about this. He alone is God. And if I worship idols then I'm going to become like what I worship. And I don't know, for me, it just kind of shook me up. It was like a gut check. That's what this passage did for me. 
when I understood it this way. This was a gut check to check my life and say, am I really serving the true God like Isaiah did or, or have I started making little idols for myself? I think that's what we have to, to uh, how to apply this passage. The application of this passage is, get rid of your idols. Repent and turn back to the real God. Don't worship false gods anymore. Worship the true and living God. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, idols? Well, what are you talking about idols? I don't have any statues in my house. I don't have any little you know, Baal statue that I burn incense to or sacrifice animals to or anything like that. You know, I, don't, I don't practice idolatry. This is America. We don't have idols today. Um, well, actually, I think we do. In a tra- there actually is some traditional idolatry still taking place in our country today. Um, I mean, I, I think one example of traditional idolatry today that still takes place, when I say traditional, I mean idolatry kind of like what actually took place way back then. Uh, one of it is uh, the uh, uh, divination, I guess is what you could call it. Tarot cards, astrology, you know, people get into this stuff. But, you know, astrology, horoscopes, is just idolatry. It's ascribing to the stars, created balls of gas, ascribing to them divine characteristics and saying that these created things somehow manage the destiny of my life. I mean, that's what an idol is. It's ascribing to a created thing divine attributes and saying that star somehow affects me. And so, you know, it's, it's sinful and idolatrous to get into horoscopes and to look into astro- astrology because it's a way of, of saying that the, the created thing is like the creator. But God is the only true God. And, you know, this takes place today. Uh, I was talking to a lady I know. She's, she's not a, a Christian. Very nice lady. Um, just, you, you would just see her and you would think typical suburban housewife, normal person, minivan, SUV kind of person. Uh, you know, soccer mom, this, that kind of person, very nice, well off, doing fine in life. Not, in other words, not some sort of fringe, strange person. And we're just talking about life and kids and this and that. And uh, we're talking about how you like your house and I'm thinking of moving. And, and she said, well, you know, I went to see a psychic the other day and my psychic was saying that she saw a move in my future and that it would be to the house of my dreams. You know, and I just kind of stood there because... Like, if you can't say anything nice, you know, just don't say anything at all. So, yeah, you know, so what are you going to say? Uh, so, so she went on with the story. But, you know, it just struck me, like, this is well-educated, normal person, like all of us. It just shows you that being modern people does not mean we've somehow evolved past being idolaters. It, it still takes place. And, you know, tarot cards, do you really think the flip of the card determines what your future is? That's ascribing to cards which only, that which only belongs to God. Do you have little religious figurines in your house or in your yard? Little statues of saints and things? You know, it's not wrong to, to, to make a statue of someone and remember them. But, but you know, when it takes on this kind of a quasi-superstitious uh, feel to it, like, well, I, I wouldn't want to move that statue because, you know, just for you know, bad luck or something, you know. That's becoming idolatrous. You're ascribing to a statue, to a, a picture of some saint. And you know, if that saint came back to life and saw you with the statue of him in his house, in your house, you'd probably be like, what are you doing? You know? But somehow we, we, we kind of turn it around. It just shows the superstitious nature of human beings. We are idolaters at our deepest level. But even if, even if you don't go to psychics or palm readers or you don't have little statues in your house or whatever you, you can still be an idolater it's easy we all do it uh, you know essentially what is an idol an idol is anything that takes the place of God 
anything where we, instead of worshiping God, I worship something else in the creation. And it can be anything, anything. Ultimately, I believe, idolatry is an affair of the heart. Idolatry comes from in here. It's not necessarily something out there. It's, some, it's, it's what I do with things that are out there. Does that make sense? Uh, the human heart is the greatest idol factory in the world. This is what produces the idols. We make the idols. Hey, look at uh, page 3 of the sermon notes. Just, I did a little list of things that can be idols. Almost anything can become an idol. Almost anything. That's how powerful we are at making idols. Obviously, money can become an idol there at the top. I mean, that's the obvious one. Things, possessions, uh, relationships, you know. You desire a relationship. Oh, if I just had a, a wife, I just had a husband, if I just had a different husband, if I just had, a, you know, this or that. And, and you start to kind of dream about these things and they can become uh, idolatrous endeavors. Jobs, obviously. Careers, certainly. We all know about the, the workaholic who worships his or her work. Uh, our health. Uh, sex, of course, probably one of the hugest idols in our culture. Uh, dreams and plans. I mean, sometimes idols aren't even real things. They're just things we wish. And we dream about, and, and we never, you know, we always have this little dream, and, and it can become our hope and, and our, our goal in life instead of God Himself. Uh, education, positions, uh, possessions of power, ideas, philosophy, even religion itself. When human religion starts to become more important than the God to whom religion is supposed to appoint, it can become an idolatrous, uh, man-made sort of system. So idolatry can be. It can be anything. It can be, it can be a bottle of alcohol. Instead of trusting God for my security and my happiness and my peace of mind, I start to look to a drink or to a drug or some substance, to food. And that can become like an idol in, in the same way. Uh, instead of trusting God as, as my source of knowledge and wisdom and truth, I start to look to my own education or my own intelligence or different philosophical ideas so it's, it's funny, it's all these things in the world that aren't evil in and of themselves, but my heart takes them and makes them into idols. That's why I think that the problem with idolatry is in here. It's not necessarily out there. So uh, we've we got to throw away our idols. We, we have to toss them out. Whatever those idols are. You know, it's like, what are my idols? Well, you, you know, one of the tests that I do on my own self to sort of figure out what my idols are, it's just kind of a diagnostic you can run, is ask yourself this. When, when you have some free time, which is not very often, some free time, just let your mind wander and think about whatever you want to think about. What does your mind go to? What do you think about? What do you dream about? Like I've said before, when, this, when you have time to let the screensaver come on in your brain, you know, what comes on the screensaver? What, what is it that you just kind of gravitate toward? And what I have found in my own life is that when my mind keeps gravitating back to a certain thing, frequently... That's probably a good indicator that it's taking on an idolatrous place in my life. You know, whenever I'm, I have a, a break and I start thinking of this, I start, start thinking of this, and in my free time it goes to this. It, so it's like I'm taking it, I'm turning it around in my mind, you know, like Gollum, you know, with the one ring and Lord of the Rings. I just keep, that's the one thing I'm fixated on. And, and it, it could be anything. And, and whenever something starts, that starts to happen, pretty good indicator that, that I'm worshiping an idol. And so what happens is, as my, my free mental time kind of goes up and up and up focused on this. My time that I spend thinking of God and communing with Him goes like this. And I find that my, my feelings toward God have, have uh, ebbed and while this other one has flowed. 
And, and I just find I'm spiritually insensible. And I'm like, wow, my, my heart toward God has been so cold, but my heart toward X has been so strong. And I can just feel that becoming like what I worship. My spiritual sensitivities are dying as my idolatry is rising. So I think the application of this verse, one of the main ones is, get rid of your idols! That's the way I'd sum it up. Throw them out! Save yourself! Don't, don't reach that point of no return and don't let yourself worship idols so much that God would ever wash His hands of you. Repent! Throw away your idols. Destroy them. If you're a Christian, man, just come back to the Lord. If you're not a Christian, throw it away and grab hold of Jesus. That's the application. Now, I know there's some of you who are thinking, but wait, how can I repent of my idols if I'm too hardened to repent? I mean, isn't that the point of this whole passage is that God hardens idolaters so they can't repent? So what if I've reached that point where I'm so hardened that I can't repent? And you're telling me the application is to repent, but I can't repent because I've... You see the whole thing here? And you, know, you kind of go like, hmm. You know, I had this friend who used to call me uh, I've talked about him before, kind of a strange guy from high school, calls me once every six months with, you know, 12 at midnight with some random things to talk about. One of those kind of friends. And, uh, and, and this is a guy who's go through a lot of struggles in his life. And, and he would call me and say, hey, you know, I think I've gone too far, Jeremy. I think I've done too many things and that God has written me off and I can't come back to the Lord. And, I, and the thing I always tell him is, look, if you're worried about it, chances are you haven't gone too far. Because people who have gone too far can really care less what God has to say. And that's the whole point of being hardened, is that you just, you're hard and you don't care. So I say, that it's a good sign that you're still worried. But the point is, if, if you're feeling that way, you should repent. If, if you're wondering, have I gone too far or not, that's good. I think God's needling you a little bit. So don't sit there and stare at your spiritual navel and go, am I too hardened? Have I been hardened? I don't know. You know, uh, Just forget all that. Just... Repent and throw away your idols and run to God. That's the point. That's how we should respond. It's, it's like, go back to canoe imagery. Do, 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 you know, going down, even passing signs, passing signs, and for whatever reason, one of the signs catches your attention. And you go, oh, what if there really is a waterfall at the end of the river? What if there really is a hell? What if all this stuff really does matter? And, it's, and for the first time in like months, it clicks. And you're like, wow, what should you do? Should you then stop and try to say, well, have I gone too far down the river? It, it, maybe I have gone too far down the river. You know, well, I don't know if I have. No, you know, don't do it. Just get out of the canoe. <laughs> don't sit around trying to figure it out as the canoe goes further and further down the river. Just jump out, yell for help, try to paddle to the side. Whatever you have to do, the point is just get out and, and, and run for help. The point is you're here right now. That's the point. You're in this room right now hearing Isaiah and Holy Spirit speak to you right now. Okay? This is where you are. I mean, forget hypothetical, am I, aren't I? This is where you are. So respond to what you're hearing right now. Even more importantly, though, you're not here. Not, not only that you're here, but Jesus Christ is here. That's the most important thing. He is literally with us through the power of His Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, Christ is. He is here right now. And the great thing about Jesus is that His blood can save the worst of the worst of the worst of people. That the blood of Jesus Christ can salvage the person, even the guy who's teetering over the waterfall. Jesus' blood is so powerful, He can even save that guy. And so what you need to do is to turn to Christ. 
Jesus is walking across the water, walking across the river. Everything's flowing by, but he walks on it like it's cement. He's walking towards your canoe. And, and here it comes. Your canoe's coming down. Here's Jesus walking towards you. Intersection's coming. What are you going to do? Two things you can do. You can jump out of the canoe and grab onto him, or you can just kind of look at him and pass on down the river. He's here right now. Don't put it off. Turn to him now. You're like, well, I don't know. I, I got this, all the stuff in the canoe I like. Man, let it go. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? It's all worthless. It's all going to burn. Your house is going to burn. Your job's not going to be there. Your health is going to fade someday. That person that you, you know, dream about, fantasize about, is going to die. It's all going away. Jesus is not. And so you need to grab onto Christ and let all those other things just go their, their course where God has destined them. And here's the really cool thing, and I'll close with this, is that when we grab hold of Jesus... It's not just that He saves us from the waterfall. It's not just that He saves us from hell. But then he's, He dries us off and cleans us off. And then He says, follow me. And you begin a new journey. Now, following Jesus isn't just fire insurance from hell. It's the beginning of a whole new life. It's a hike. It's not an easy canoe ride. It's going to be a hike. It's going to be challenging. But He's going to take you on a hike. And as you follow Him, you are going to become like the one you worship. Becoming like who you worship goes both ways. If you worship idols, you become like an idol. But like Isaiah, if you worship the living God, you will become holy like the living God. That's the cool thing. You can become a totally different person through the power of Jesus Christ who is alive today. And so I guess I could close with uh, uh, Joshua chapter 24. You know this verse? Joshua 24, page 231. Joshua 24. Perfect application of today's passage. Joshua 24, verse 14, page 231. This was Joshua's farewell address to the Israelites. And this is my farewell verse to you at the end of the sermon. 24:14. It says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and then serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen. you to stand together as we respond to the Lord this morning by declaring our desire for holiness and faithfulness and righteousness. So let's sing to him this morning. Pour out our hearts to him. Holiness, holiness, what I love more. 
the end of the service here we want to revive a practice that's fallen into disrepair uh, we'd like to welcome new members to our congregation who've been voted in as members so as I read their names I just want them to quickly come down if they're here stand here in a line and after the service if you'd come by and greet them and, and Bobby Stockbridge why don't you come down here too and people can say hi to you I know you don't, let, don't like that kind of thing but you'll be here with a bunch of people so if I read your name and you're a new member just come on down and stand here and Bobby Stockbridge and uh, after the service <laughs> After the service, just everyone come by and, and, uh, and greet uh, the new members. Kevin Perslow, Naomi Stella, Michelle Williams, Tony and Anna Marsico, I know they're here, Adrian and Josephine Hanley, Harry Tatoian, I saw you, Wesley Gustafson and Sheila, his wife, Andy and Cheryl Briggs, Lynn Brennan, Joanna Everson, Julie Randall, Jenny Galpin, and reinstated to membership is uh, Dan Griffith. Glad to have him back with us. So uh, we're glad to have uh, new members with us. And let's just give our new members a round of applause. And Delighted to have you as members of our congregation, and uh, we're, we're the richer for it. So come on up after the service and greet the new people. God bless, and have a great week.